are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. We're reading from the book of Acts, chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, how are we all doing, everybody? We're going to do a quick recap here while parents are taking their kids down to catechism. Uh, the action is picking up in our study of Acts. Uh, if you've been tracking with us the last couple of weeks, opposition is rising, persecution is beginning, like programmed persecutions beginning. Uh, last week, one of the most visible early leaders of the Jesus movement, this guy named Stephen, was publicly executed in a rage-fueled lynching. He's the first witness of Jesus to persist in his witness all the way to the point of death. In fact, in Greek, the word witness, uh, well, the Greek word is martyr. Um, And that's how we use that word now, to mean somebody who's, say, faithful to their witness to Jesus all the way to the point of death. And this is only the beginning, of course. Now the dam has burst, decisive action has been taken, and all restraint seems to be thrown off as the enemies of the Jesus movement begin to move in force against the early church. So pretend you don't know what happens next. Is this the end of the church? When we moved into the house we're living in now, six or seven years ago or so, our yard was overrun by dandelion weeds. You know, the worst. but our daughter, Anna, she, she loved them. She was six or so at the time. And her favorite thing to do was to pick a dandelion that had gone to seed and then see if she could blow all the seeds off in just in one big breath. How many of you have done this? More people than should admit it. Yeah, just blow them all off with... And it, you know, it was so cute. It made like my dad heart really happy. Um, but the weed-fighting Lord of the Lawn heart in me was just a little cringy sad. Every time she did it, I... I I told her uh, yesterday I was going to tell this story, and she's like, well, I still like doing it, but now I blow the seeds into the street. (laughs) It's like, great, the neighbors love us, right? (laughs) See, every time you see one of those dandelion puffball seed things, you know it's like a ticking time bomb, right? Just the slightest little breeze is going to come by, and suddenly your whole lawn, like next year, it doesn't look like anything right away, but next year, you know, the lawn is going to be horrible. Every time I see those, I want to go out with a shop vac and just like suck up all of the dandelions before rooting them out. Ah, because the problem with you know, weeds, like, 
like dandelions, is that there's this narrow window of time in which you can attack the plant. If you wait too long, once it's gone to seed, then you're doomed. You can, you can attack the plant, but you're just going to end up spreading the seeds, right? And then you're going to have more plants to attack next year. Now, the great thing about the Jesus movement, according to Luke's history of the early church, is that there was no window of time in which the movement could be attacked and kept from spreading, because they tried it at the very beginning and tried to take out the leader, Jesus himself, and we all know what happened. He came right back from the dead. Well, in Acts chapter 8, this first kind of great attack on the early church, it scatters the followers of Jesus far and wide. But all it ends up accomplishing is spreading the seeds of new churches all around the world. Now, from the outside, the opposition to the Jesus movement, it looks like a, a, random, you know, a random scattering, like shrapnel after a bomb blast or like shards of glass from that light bulb, which burst halfway through the sermon first hour and spread all over the stage. Should have been here to see it. Check the live stream later and you can watch it for yourself. That's random in the way I had a statistician correct me, by the way, after first hour and say, no, random means this, not that. But anyway, you know what I mean when I say random. It's just whatever willy-nilly spread all over the place. That's what it can look like from the outside. But if God is using the scattering, then it's never random. It's intentional. And that's the main point that I want us to walk away from studying this passage this morning. Is just like the early church, followers of Jesus are never scattered. We're sown. Followers of Jesus are never randomly scattered, distributed according to just whatever forces. We are intentionally, purposefully sown by God into wherever we are. So let's dig into this passage, Acts chapter 8. We're going to walk through the historical events that Luke narrates for us. And as we walk through these, uh, you might notice that he's writing the story of the church almost like it's a death and a resurrection when the church seems defeated and then rises again. As we go through this, we're going to see how God is intentionally using the opposition, the persecution, the, the almost death of the church to, to sow not just to scatter, but to sow the followers of Jesus into fertile new territory. So let's go. Let's jump in. Acts chapter 8, picking up in verse 1. I'm on page 46 if you've got one of these journals. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And there arose on that day, the day that Stephen was executed, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, again, if we were to stop here and pretend we don't know the rest of the story, then things look pretty grim for the Jesus movement. Stephen has just been dragged outside the city and executed. Things are getting worse. A, not just a persecution, but a great persecution starts. Now, I know sometimes we use the word persecution to kind of refer to maybe a general antagonism that someone might have towards someone else because of their theological commitments or religious behavior or, or their beliefs or something like that. But in this context, it's, persecution is more than the disconnected actions of a few people antagonistic towards a few other people. When the word persecution is used in the New Testament, it only shows up eight or nine times. But when the word persecution is used in the New Testament, it's always referring to an intentional program, like a decided out plan to oppress 
harass a particular class of people, in this case, followers of Jesus. We get a description of what's going on there. If we skip over verse 2 to verse 3, it says, but Saul was ravaging the church. This is the same Saul who approved of the execution of Stephen. Now, whether Saul's in charge of this uh, persecution or not, uh, he's a pivotal figure because literally the story is going to pivot now to Saul in a couple of chapters as we read about his conversion to Christianity. But again, we're not there yet. Uh, Verse 3 tells us Saul was ravaging the church, beginning to destroy, starting the plan that he thought would ultimately end up with the destruction of this movement that believes Jesus is the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. And he went house to house. It says, entering house after house after house. He dragged off men and women, and committed them to prison where they would await interrogations, beatings, and worse. This is escalating now beyond what we saw in the previous chapters, the the imprisonment, the beating of a couple of apostles, all of the apostles eventually. And Luke is actually downplaying a bit of the severity of Saul's actions because, I don't know, 20 or 18 chapters later, he's going to record Saul's own words as he talks about this time period and what he was doing. When Saul says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. He says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. And Saul's own words, in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. So the goal in this program of persecution, Saul's goal is to harm the church so severely that it's no longer a viable movement. He's not just lashing out indiscriminately. He's systematically working to destroy the Jesus movement. And there's a plan for doing it. Track down their meeting places, arrest followers of Jesus in their own homes, through threat of violence, attempt to force them to renounce their faith, and then eliminate them altogether, either by executing them or forcing them to flee the city. And bonus points, if they relocate, great, you can follow them and root out yet another place where the followers of Jesus are gathering together and then drag them all back to prison in Jerusalem. Now that is on a much grander scale. It's basically the same thing that I do to take care of dandelions. Right? Those ones that Anna loved to spread all over the lawn. You track down where they're rooted, you cut them completely out of the ground, you dispose of them. No mercy. And this persecution movement in chapter 8, it's strong and it's successful. Pretty much everyone is driven out of Jerusalem except the apostles. Now, it's possible that Luke means that literally, that that literally everyone except for the 12 apostles left town. But likely it's, it's, it's like hyperbole, you know, to make a point that everybody scattered. You know, by the time we get to chapter 15, we're actually going to see the church in Jerusalem is still kind of considered the central governing authority of the church that is now spreading throughout the world. And in the meantime, though, it's not easy for those who remain in Jerusalem. Popular opinion has shifted against the Jesus movement enough that in chapter 12, we're going to see one of the politicians kind of currying favor with the crowd by arresting and executing one of the apostles. So it's not a great place to be. 
If we didn't know better, we'd think the Jesus movement might be at an end. The church, all the people in the church are scattered. Except followers of Jesus are never scattered. We're sown. This movement is intentional. Now, before we turn to see what happens next, I want us to to pause, sit here for a moment, and, and think about the word persecution as it's being used here. Remember, persecution in the New Testament context is a thought-out, planned-out, systematic program of harassing and oppressing a particular group of people. I know we talk about, we use the word persecution sometimes to refer to attitudes or actions against Christians in places like you know, the U.S., like our own experience, and we're probably minimizing the word persecution when we apply it uh, to ourselves. Right, inconvenience or antagonism is not the same thing as uh, persecution. And the, the followers of Jesus here, well, Luke never gives us uh, even a hint of an intimation that they took upon themselves this kind of identity as a persecuted minority. They just didn't think of themselves that way, wouldn't have defined themselves as a persecuted minority, at least not in the way that we kind of think about that phrase and what that means for us today. So I find it a little jarring when I I read like online, especially what conservative Christians are writing about where we live and what's going on in the world around us right now, especially those who are, for political reasons, trying to, to gain a following. I'm struck by how often people that theologically we would agree with want to claim that we are a persecuted minority. Now, it may be that conservative Christianity is in the minority, and it may be that there exists an intentional program in the United States to harass and oppress conservative Christians, though I doubt we will ever be that organized. I think we should be wary and cautious of creating and then claiming the identity of persecuted minority. Because the reason that we create and claim that identity isn't because it's a helpful descriptor or even an accurate description of reality, but because when we can apply that label to ourselves, it centers the core definition of how we think about ourselves not anymore as followers of Jesus, but as an oppressed group with limited power over against a large group with lots of power. And in the culture we live in today right now, groups with no power get more honor and groups that do the oppressing should be shamed, right? We're using biblical language when we talk about persecution, but we're using it to communicate non-biblical ideas. This idea that, hey, I'm a persecuted minority, therefore I deserve more honor, and you deserve shame for persecuting me. That's not biblical. You're not more righteous or less righteous because you're oppressed or an oppressor. So this is a point of application, a word of warning. We need to be not so quick to apply the word persecution to every little antagonism that we may feel or uncomfortable situation we may find ourselves in when we tell someone that we're a follower of Jesus. Most of the time when we do that, we're elevating the impact of what happens to us because if we're victims, we think we're more righteous. 
And that's not a biblical perspective. That's just playing the same game that the rest of the world around us is playing. Not a game we want to play, not a game we're going to win. Let's get back to the text. If we stopped reading after verse 3, I've said this a couple times, we'd come away with the sense that the Jesus movement is doomed, right? Strike the shepherd and you scatter the sheep. You all know it. Uh, This is, Luke is picturing it like a death and a resurrection. Like the church is dying and then suddenly coming back to life in a different place. Let's move on to the resurrection, to the hope in this passage. Look at verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And buried in that verse is this entire story this, the, of uh, this, I don't know how to put it, this huge emotional impact of really the people who were driven out of their homes in the night because of their faith in Jesus find their, themselves in a new place and they immediately start doing what? Telling people about Jesus. What could motivate that kind of behavior? We're going to come back to that. Before we come back to it, though, I want, I want you to notice that the same word is used in verse 1 and verse 4 to describe the, the, the flight of the believers from Jerusalem. It's this word, scattered. Generally, a word that when we use it, we, we want to imply a, a random distribution of something away from a central point. Right? You scatter ashes. You scatter dandelion seeds. Right? Things are being spread out somewhat haphazardly. But in the, in the language you know, that the Bible, this part of the Bible is written in, in Greek, uh, the word translated as scattered is a compound word that comes from the world of agriculture, and it's the word used to describe a farmer who thoroughly and widely sows seed into a plot of ground in order to get a harvest. It's, it's this word dispersing evenly and intentionally seed to where you know that it's going to grow. In other words, even though the translation I'm reading from uses the word scattered and this sermon is called the scattering and this section, subsection of the book of Acts we're studying is called the scattering of the gospel, followers of Jesus are never scattered randomly. We're always sown intentionally. There's an intentional movement to how God is sowing people into the world around them. It's no surprise, right, that when Luke shows the gospel spreading out beyond Jerusalem, he tells stories of the seeds of the gospel being planted in, being sown in Samaria. Remember Acts 1.8? That verse at the very beginning that kind of gives us the outline for the whole book is when Jesus tells the church, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. They've been centered in Jerusalem, touring and preaching in Judea. Now the gospel spreads to, the gospel is sown into Samaria. Look at verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Luke keeps it generic. He doesn't tell us what city, just the region. But Philip goes down, which is north if you were wondering, it's a little backwards in the way that they would use up, down, north, south, whatever. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria to the north and proclaims to them the Christ. You remember this guy, Philip, not Philip the apostle, but the other one, the one who was chosen to be one of the seven who administered uh, you know, relief resources to the, the Greek widows. This Philip, he's forced out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, heads north to Samaria, begins teaching and preaching about 
the Christ, the Messiah. And this is chapter 8, verse 5. This is the first time that we see the good news. The good news that Jesus is the Messiah Israel has been waiting for and the true Lord of the world. This is the first time we see that good news moving beyond those who were ethnically Jewish and theologically expecting a Messiah. Samaritans were not Jewish. They were a mixed group with partial Jewish ancestry. And Jews never claimed Samaritans. I was like, no, you are not part of us. And Samaritans were only like, yeah, we're Jewish when Israel was doing well. When Israel wasn't doing well, they're like, yeah, we're not Jewish at all. We don't want any part of that. But the Samaritans, interestingly, kind of uniquely for them, they only took the first five books of, of the Old Testament as real scripture. So they were expecting, like Moses had promised, another prophet like him. They were expecting another prophet, but they they didn't read or study Isaiah and his predictions of a Messiah. So they didn't have the same kind of messianic expectations that Jerusalem and Judea did. But the crowds are nevertheless enraptured by Philip's preaching. They're enthralled by uh, the miraculous signs that he performs, healings, exorcisms, the same things we've been seeing everywhere the gospel goes in the early church. It's accompanied by signs and wonders legitimate the message. And the miracles lead to great joy, joy eventually to believing faith, as it says a, a few verses later. So there's a death and a resurrection of the church. It looked as if the church was at death's door with the, the program of persecution enacted by Saul, and yet what Saul thought would kill the church, God used to sow the church into new and fertile ground. See, it looked like the church was scattered. But God wasn't scattering his people, he was sowing his people. Followers of Jesus, right, are never scattered. We're sown. So let me ask you this. Where have you been sown? Where have you been sown? Because you may think that where you are now is more or less just the product of past decisions and random forces and who knows what, but where you are now, you know, where you're working, where you're going to school, where you're spending your free time, where your kids are going to school, where you're spending your time now that you're retired. God has intentionally sown you into particular places at particular times because you are the gospel seeds he's sowing in the world. Because followers of Jesus are never randomly scattered. We're intentionally sown. Because each of us, right, you and me equally, we are bearers of the good news that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the true Lord of the whole earth. And we, by our lives and by our beliefs, are proof that God is doing something new in the world in Jesus. That he's inviting people to repentance to find life in the name of Jesus, and to be transformed by his grace and join into, be adopted into the kingdom of God and join God in his, this calling to, to call the whole world to faith in Jesus. That's what we're part of. That's what we're sown into. That's what we're sown with. So where are you being sown? 
And are you taking root there? It's a tough question to answer. Actually, it's a tough question even for me to answer. We've been in the same neighborhood and house for six or seven years now. I still find it difficult to talk to neighbors about anything beyond just, you know, what I do. I'm a pastor, right? It's still hard for me to kind of turn it, in, turn it towards, like become friends with our neighbors and share Jesus with them. I'm way more comfortable up here on a stage preaching to a crowd than I am talking to somebody who doesn't know Jesus one-on-one. Of course, I've always found that the one-on-one conversations are way more interesting and fun uh, and enjoyable, and yet I would rather be up here in front of a crowd. Maybe you're the same way. Or maybe you're like, I'm not doing either. (laughs) I'm not getting on stage or talking (laughs) to someone one-on-one. And if you are, I mean, I get it. Because I, 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 I feel that way too. But bearing the good news of Jesus isn't limited to the professional class, to the clergy, to the pastors, to the, the missionaries. I mentioned verse four a few moments ago. Take a look at it again. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Remind me uh, from verse uh, one, who wasn't scattered? The apostles. Who was scattered? Everyone else. And what did they do? Preach the word. Literally, they good newsed the word, the message about who Jesus is, the message of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. And they're doing it wherever they went, wherever they happened to go, whether it was Judea, Samaria, Antioch, further east, wherever they went, as they were going, they good newsed the message of the kingdom. And followers of Jesus have never stopped good newsing the message of the kingdom wherever they've gone. So it shouldn't stop with us. Where are we? Where are you? Where am I? Good newsing the message of the gospel, the message of life in the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Who are we taking it to? Now, if the idea of sharing the gospel, of being you know, an evangelist. Uh, if, if the idea of even simply talking to friends or family or coworkers about Jesus is intimidating to you, I get it. It's intimidating to me too. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be announcing some ways that you can jump into some uh, learning opportunities, some smaller groups that are designed to kind of equip us and challenge us and give us the tools and the confidence that we need to help the people we love take steps towards Jesus. Look, it's, it's not a hard sell, like sales pitch type training. What's it going to take to get you into Christianity today? Nothing like that. It, it's about overcoming some of the obstacles, like some of the obstacles in me and some of the obstacles in the person you're talking to. It's just about overcoming those obstacles so you can introduce people you love to the God you love, which is something I think we all want to be able to do. So keep an eye out in the next couple of weeks for something called Life to Life, groups on how do you share Jesus life to life. We're going to give details in the next couple of weeks about how you can join one of these groups and how they'll help you as you try to introduce people you love to the God that you love. So anyway, keep, a, keep an eye out for that. Let's, let's wrap this up, though. Uh, we're out of time this morning. Somebody told me, uh, or I read it somewhere, that uh, a weed is just a plant that's growing where you don't want it. Is that correct? Okay. I don't know if the rest of the world sees the church like a weed, like a dandelion. I don't know if the rest of the world is is desperate to keep 
the gospel from spreading. But I have noticed that wherever people of faith are sown and the gospel takes root, guess what grows? A church. Every single time. And we're going to see that pattern over and over again as we continue through the book of Acts. And if we had the resources and the source material, we could trace that pattern all the way throughout history from Acts chapter 8 to Faith Church, the corner of 91st and College in the 21st century. To here, where we, too, are being sown with the gospel into the world around us. Because it's always been true, followers of Jesus are never scattered. We are sown. So let's take root. Father, thank you that you have given us the new life that allows us to be seed, to be sown into dead and dying ground with the life of the gospel. Father, we long to be the people that bring life to the world around us, to the people we love that are around us, to, to the churches and the workplaces, the schools, the, uh, the homes, the families, the, the places that we go to play. Everywhere that we go, we, we want to bring the life of Jesus. So we pray that you would use us, send us, sow us, and help us to be open to sharing the life that we've found. We pray this in Jesus' name.